Hey everybody, today's episode was actually recorded on July 11th. Some things probably have changed since then, but the most important thing that I want you to take away from today's episode is how to volunteer, donate, and organize around issues like reproductive justice. Something that is very new to Guerreras is that if you check out the link in our bio at Guerreras underscore pod on Instagram, is that you now have access to episode notes. This is my effort in ensuring that you have access to the knowledge of what my guest and I are speaking about from each podcast, from their podcast, like Abby is the host of, well, that's a problem, the podcast. I want you all to know that in order to create a sustainable revolution, we must all have access to education and efforts of being able to do that. My guest and myself will ensure that you have all the resources to links, to organizations, to books, to videos that will prepare you to be the leaders that the country needs today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Subscribe to us, leave us a little note, and by note, I mean a comment. And if you want to send me a note, you totally can. Guerreras is a podcast that is dedicated to women in the movement. It is for you to find your political voice and for you to become empowered and engaged in the issues that you want to lead on. Believe me, your voice is necessary to create a more equitable society. And that is exactly what you deserve. Hey everybody, this is Aurea and welcome to Guerreras. In today's episode, we have a guest, Abby Naraki from the Well, That's a Problem podcast. Abby is currently a student at Purdue University studying the sociology of reproduction and is currently the advocacy intern at ACLU of Indiana. This is me, round of applause, but I'm actually snapping. Abby, how are you doing? I am doing great. I am so excited to be here. It's great to be back on Guerreras, honestly, one of my favorite podcasts of all time. And I'm really excited about today's topic. So I think people are really going to enjoy hearing us talk about this because we both care so much about this issue. Yeah. So if any of you are looking at our infographics or wondering, huh, what did I just click on? Today's episode is about reproductive health care. And especially why Latinas should no longer be silent about reproductive health care. So, Abby, I invited you here today because, like, you know, SCOTUS released a statement on Wednesday in the decision about the Affordable Care Act, right? Earlier this week, the Supreme Court shared their opinion on two consolidated cases, Little Sisters of the Poor v. Pennsylvania and Donald J. Trump v. Pennsylvania, cases which... Uh, called into question the legality of the Trump administration's 2019 ruling, broadening conscientious objection exemptions. It's a lot, I know y'all, but we got to give you the background. To the Affordable Care Act regarding abortion, contraception, assisted suicide, and advanced directives, and other types of medical care. So, Abby, tell us why this case rocked the country, why so many organizations like uh, Planned Parenthood, now ACLU, became ignited again to talk about reproductive health care in our communities and what this means for women and women of color. 
there's a lot there, but let's go. <laughs> so the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, right, went into effect many years ago. Um, it was a really groundbreaking program and policy package because it was trying to take that first step towards universal health care, um, guaranteeing that everybody was going to have access to some form of health care. And part of that is that employers were going to be required to, in their plans for their employees, provide access to free health, like birth control and contraception, mm-hmm. um, which was really awesome. And people were really excited about that. But then of course, there's always the people who are not excited about that, which are the conservatives who don't agree that birth control is a human right and everyone should have access to it. And so this decision in particular is bringing all of this back up again, because while you know places like churches and synagogues and other religious institutions already had exemptions for this, mm-hmm. so they already had this exemption worked out in the Affordable Care Act that said, okay, I'm a church. Like, if you work for my church, like, I'm not paying for your birth control because I don't believe in birth control because I hate women. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not who we're talking about here today. This decision really focused on other religious affiliated universities, charities, nonprofits, and hospitals Mm. who employ literally like hundreds of thousands to millions of people in the United States. And so the the bullshit with this, if I may say. (laughs) Yes, no, please. Guerreras is very inclusive of all language, especially language that is about how frustrated and fucking upset we are that we're dealing with this over and over again, because Obamacare came out in 2010, right? So it's been about mm-hmm. a decade. And under Obamacare health law, like your employers must cover birth control as a preventative service to no charge to women, right? Within their mm-hmm. insurance plans. But this ruling, like you're saying, like it allows employers and like religious employers to tell us we can't have access to these Yes. And they go so far with it because what's going on is so these, these types of organizations, these Mm -hmm. charities, these hospitals, these universities and things like that had already an opt out provision under ACA, the Affordable Care Act Mm -hmm. that required the org to say, Hey, look, like we're a religiously affiliated university. If we pay for birth control under our plan, that goes against our religious tenants and we're not okay with this. So I'm going to fill out this paperwork as the like boss of this insurance plan mm-hmm. and say, hey, I object to this. I don't want to do this. And so under the ACA, this opt-out policy for these organizations gave them an out, but still provided free birth control from the insurance company separate from the employer's plan. So basically what they say is even with this religious objection at work, people could still get coverage for birth control. So even though I work for, and I I don't, but imagine that I did, I work for a religiously affiliated university that doesn't believe in birth control, I can still get access to birth control under these objections for Mm -hmm. low to no cost to me. Mm -hmm. Which is is life-saving. Yes. Right. Literally life-saving, like helps me prioritize my own health and my own plans for my life and to be able to make my own decisions about my reproductive health care. Many organizations didn't like this because they were saying like, oh, this just feels like completing this opt-out form is basically the same thing as giving them the okay to like use birth control and still work for me. 
So in other words, if anyone is getting birth control access while employed by me, I'm unhappy. And that's where all of this case really comes to a head, mm-hmm. right? Because it, it gets worked up the chain and they're like, no, we need to cut it off. We need to say, I am not okay with this. And under no circumstances with me as your employer, should you have access to birth control as my employee under my plan or while working for my company? And so, and that for me, I think it's, it's going to be a lot of question. I know for me, at least as a question is how dare a company, right? Control what I do with my body. Right. It, 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 even what religion, right? I think you and I were talking about separation of church and state, right? Like, and I think the, the, the primary argument, not even argument, but what women have been trying to say for centuries, because contraceptive is not a new thing. We have been saying that we just serve autonomy over our own bodies. Like mm-hmm. we, should be making our decisions, right? But how how is it that company? Maybe you know this, or maybe we'll research it later. But how is it that companies can make those decisions for us as their employees? Is this the the? Let's add this to the cake. Is this the capitalist, right? Capitalism getting involved in the uh, bodily autonomy of its workers? I think at one point that probably you know you study sociology, so you probably are nodding at me like yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely it is. And right, like when we talk about capitalism, we're talking about white supremacy. When we talk about capitalism, we're talking about patriarchy. And those are two key mechanisms that are driving decisions about bodily autonomy and reproductive health care in the United States and in the world more broadly, quite frankly. Because mm-hmm. the workers and, are mm-hmm. poor, the workers are women, the workers are in marginalized communities. And guess who's getting fucked over over capitalism? Uh-huh. Yeah, us. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just the Venn diagram between people who get fucked by capitalism and the people who are already disenfranchised by society is a circle. (laughs) That is so good. Oh my God. I'm going to have to make that a graphic for today. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a circle. Like who's getting fucked by capitalism? We're all in the circle. Well, and this Uh, is, you know, with this decision, the, the part of this that is you know, it's focused on religious exemption, right? And so a lot of the arguments that go back and forth at the Supreme Court is about this separation of church and state, this idea that like under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, mm-hmm. so a lot of that is like, look, we need this separation of church and state. We need, I need to be able to do my own thing as a religious institution that the state can't do anything for. And that's been going on, you know, for forever. Right. Since church was a thing, they've wanted separation from the government. Mm -hmm. Um, And the thing is, is issues of church and state that go all the way to the Supreme Court often end up, the Supreme Court often sides with religious institutions. So historically, this is, this is the case to the point where, so Right. This decision was a seven to two decision. Mm -hmm. The two dissenting on this case, so the two saying, um, no, we're not okay with this decision, are RBG and Sotomayor, the two women justices. Well, two out of the three, right? Because Elena Kagan. Mm -hmm. Elena Kagan is one of the other women. But RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we stand. Sonia Mm -hmm. Sotomayor, a Puerto Rican, New Yorican, in the court, the only one ever. I usually yeah. dissenting and opinions about uh, on the basis of sex, right? Like mm-hmm. RBG's court case that kind of decided 
that women should not, we should not be discriminated on the basis of, of being women. Mm-hmm. She's usually saying like, what the hell is going on? We, we're going through this over and over again and that we should not be. Right. So anyways, for yeah. anybody that's like who and who, yes, right. that's the background. Right. These are our people fighting for us. But like literally RBG wrote, quote, for the first time, the court casts totally aside countervailing rights and interests in its zeal to secure religious rights to the nth degree. So that was part of her dissenting opinion that she mm-hmm. that she came forward saying after this decision passed. So literally she's highlighting in that statement that yet again, the courts are prioritizing religious freedoms at the expense of literally hundreds of thousands of women, non-binary folk, and trans folk that need access to contraception. I, I think I read in Al, I was reading Al Jazeera and um, the New York Times that the government has estimated that any changes on this, like these changes on this rule is going to make about uh, 70,000 to 126,000 people lose contraceptive coverage within one year. Within one year, mm-hmm. over 100,000 people are going to lose access to contraceptive coverage. And just like you're saying, the people that end up losing out on this are women, women in poor communities, women that may be in abusive households, uh, non-binary people that need, still need access to contraceptives, right? Mm-hmm. We, we mm-hmm. also, nobody should be asking the questions like, why you need them? It's like, if I need it, I need it. Because it should be my right to my own body. And like you said it earlier right now, it's that bodily autonomy and to put my health first. Like how many times have we been taught that like, as women, right? Like our health doesn't come first. Somebody else's health comes first. That we're kind of an afterthought mm-hmm. of oppression from the state and the church. Yeah. Over and over again, that gets reiterated in people's lives, like my life, like your life, everyone, you know? And like, here's what, okay. Mm -hmm. I have a thing to say about this is that, okay. So reproductive justice, a theoretical perspective, a praxis, a life approach to social issues, right? That was designed by women of color for women of color emerged in the mid 90s um, and has taken the world by storm has a lot to say about this so reproductive justice says okay most important is the right to bodily autonomy the right to choose when if and how to have children and to be able to raise and parent the children that i do have in safe stable communities mm-hmm. okay so I use this perspective in my research and in my ways of looking at social issues. And what I find, you know, laughable in the way that, you know, it's trauma for me to have to like say this over and over again. Mm. And all I can do is laugh about it is that, okay, so the organizations that are protesting them on this like religious and moral objection basis are the same ones who place the traditional quote unquote nuclear family on this pedestal. So they're the ones that are saying, you know, it's about being married to one man and one woman and having children only in the context of marriage and having sex only in the context of marriage when you intend to get pregnant and blah, blah, blah. But okay. First of all, there's no such thing as the traditional nuclear family. It never existed. It was literally a like, 
propaganda by the government to control and structure our reproduction under capitalism that's mm-hmm. a, maybe a separate episode of a podcast somewhere yeah, we, we can we need a whole panel for a capital capitalism and how it affects women of color and right. it is coming y'all i just need to put all these people together because i'm looking right. for women scholars and if you're looking at listening to this and you know a woman scholar that talks about any of the issues that I, we touch upon on these episodes on guerreras as a whole Send me a message on Instagram. I want to have you on the episode because we are highlighting women voices. That is Hell it. Yes. Go. Yes. <laughs> but, right. So, okay. So, first of all, right, nuclear family doesn't exist. Bullshit. But yeah. these orgs, like, that are saying, no, I want my religious objection. I need to be able to say I'm not providing birth control. Aren't the organizations offering comprehensive family leave policies, paid parental leave policies? They're leaving families in the dust. It's okay. So, right. They say that we felt we care about the family and we care about this religious ideal of the family, but they're not doing anything to actually support it. They also aren't the organizations fighting to defund the police because of all the black families they've broken up with their brutality and over policing. They're also certainly not the organizations advocating to abolish ICE when they detain parents, children, and loved ones and put them in cages and cost them their health and their well-being, or even like access to abortion. Like, Mm-hmm. Right, because those things are in conflict. Mm-hmm. And so, again, if you're going to sit here and say, okay, I care about the family, show me that you care about the family with your comprehensive policies. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, I mean, talking about defunding the police, right? The all US departments combined have an estimated budget of $115, $115 billion. $115 billion that could be going to healthcare, that could be going into feeding our communities, that could be going to insurance policies that are actually accessible for women and men and they thems who need access to literally survive, like resources right. to survive. Yes. $115 billion to, for a state-sanctioned military organization. Right. I don't think so. And that's just, so. you know, police that work in the United States, let alone the military industrial complex, which brings in so much more money. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. If you think 115 billion is a lot, just think about 600 billion a year right. that we spend in the military or over that. I think yeah, it's probably over that, over that now. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> yes. Right. Like there are so many things that we spend so, so much money on that could be going to things like healthcare. And honestly, one of the things that this issue with the Affordable Care Act exemptions really highlights mm-hmm. is that we don't have a single payer healthcare system in the United States and that that puts people at risk. So Abby, single payer, what is that? Right. So when I say single payer healthcare, you might know it as universal healthcare or healthcare mm-hmm. that is provided by the government mm-hmm. and so that everybody has healthcare for free. For little to no cost to them. So mm-hmm. making healthcare and access to health insurance dependent on employers puts your health in the hands of your employer, even if they don't agree with your healthcare needs. As if your healthcare needs are something that someone could disagree with. Like, mm, I don't really think you need that life-saving medication or device or whatever. We know so- imagine, mm. right, imagine if this was something like I'm, I have anxiety, depression, I am on a medication for anxiety, depression. Imagine if my employer was to say to me, mm, yeah, I just, I think it's all in your head. And I really don't think that you need access to be able to pay for therapy and your continued use of your medication. 
that would be insane. I have a partner with diabetes. Imagine if her employer was to say, "Mm, yeah, we just don't really agree with people having diabetes. So we're just not going to pay for your insulin. And I mean, right, that's a whole separate issue because actually like the cost of insulin is rapidly rising and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But the point is, right, um, with other health issues, we don't get to say that we disagree with them. Mm -hmm. But with birth control, that has always been a contestable issue. And and not only the contestable issue, right? And that's something that I read in this great book that I'm going to drop some information on called Undivided Rights, Women of Color Organized for Reproductive Justice. Um, If y'all haven't read it yet, this is amazing. And it talks about how this argument of pro-choice and pro-life, we shouldn't even be using choice to begin with. Because there is no choice. There is no, if you have access to choice, you're already in a privileged class, right? And, and that even includes many of us women, right? If we have mm-hmm. an access to a choice, it, it, the argument is already null, right? It should just be, the, the, the argument should be, should you have access to life-saving medication, yes or no? That is the question. Right. Yes. And the absolutely. answer is yes. If, like you said, if we're not debating uh, insulin, but also the prices for insulin have gone stratospherically high, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, your employers, while they cannot discriminate on the basis of uh, race, gender, religion, sexuality, they may discriminate you on the basis on how much they have to pay for your care. Mm-hmm. That's something that people say it doesn't happen, but let's be honest, we just don't have the data on it, but I bet that happens. Oh, yeah. And now we're talking about bodily autonomy. And it's the fact that it's because of it's for women. Mm-hmm. Like, I cannot believe that insurance companies cover Viagra. Yeah. Viagra and that's one of the huge is- critiques of this decision yeah. is like, all right, then why are we still paying for Viagra? Why? Viagra is not essential health care. It is also not an essential medication. No. You can get Viagra over the counter, but you can't mm-hmm. get Plan B, but you can't get an IUD, but you can't get birth control. What are we actually arguing? And what we're arguing at the end of the day now is that women, the employers, the state, the church argues that no, women should not be able to make the decisions over their own body because that gives them too much. We should be making those decisions. We don't think they know enough. Even though they're not using those words, like if you don't give me access to medication, that's essentially what you're saying. And right. then we have children being born in poor uh, communities. We have women dying while giving birth because they did not have access to a doctor that could help them during them. How many mm-hmm. women, especially black women, their mortality rates are so high yeah. because they die while giving birth. And that's, this is also part of reproductive health care. Absolutely. When you're giving birth at a hospital and nurse practitioners and doctors assume that based on the color of your skin, you can handle more pain and they don't give you the medication or they don't believe you. Absolutely. And then you die. Right. Right. And if you want to learn more about this, check out the National Black Women's Health Project. They have a lot of information on this topic. That is also part of reproductive health care. It's not just contraception. It is for 10 months right? Allowing you to Mm -hmm. see a doctor, have the medication, and have a healthy birth. Yes. How is that? (laughs) 
my argument. Right. Right. And again, right. Okay. So you're telling me that I can't have access to birth control, but are you providing me with the ability to really access and really make a choice about how my birth experience is going to go? Mm -hmm. Because in the United States, the rate of maternal mortality is going up. We are experiencing more maternal mortality than the rest of the developed world. In the rest of the developed Western, however you want to conceptualize it, world, mm-hmm. it's going down. And it's not in the U.S. And why is that? A lot of it is because of things like obstetric racism, like you talked about, racism in healthcare, and lack of access to prenatal care, lack of access to other funds, things like that. My dissertation is actually on maternal mortality in the United States. So yes, tell us, give us a little snippet. Like, why did you okay. topic? What is it? What's basically what you're trying to find? Yeah. So what I look at is the ways that policy packages, so sets of policies that are working together, can improve maternal health care in the United States. So we have around 700 women every year dying from maternal mortality. So dying because of their birth experience. Mm -hmm. What that looks like is the rates for black women are three to four times higher than white women. So black women are three to four times as likely to die from giving birth in the United States than white women. And um, that is a huge problem. That is something I'm very much not okay with, especially because we have so much data available that says implementing programs like doula policies and getting people access to um, other important policies on reproductive health care can really reduce the rates of maternal mortality, can really reduce maternal morbidity, which is where I don't die, but I come pretty damn close. Mm-hmm. And I think that that would just set us up really positively for having better health insurance policies, better healthcare policies. But the problem is even when policies are on the books, they often don't come with all of the things that they need to be really successful. Mm -hmm. So for example, in Indiana, we have a policy that says Medicare is going to subsidize or partially cover the costs of having a doula present at your birth, but it provides no funding to that effect. So it basically says like, yeah, it's okay, we're going to do it, but it doesn't provide funding that is going to actually train people to be doulas, help people get access to doulas, funding organizations that want to make those connections for their communities. Um, So it's really limited in what it can do. Um, So I'm stepping in and saying, hello, when we talk about reproductive health care, we're not just talking about the decision whether or not to have a kid, but also what is the decision to have a kid actually look like? That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Anybody that's interested in this topic or wants to talk to Abby, you can just send us a message and I'll get you like connected with her. And Abby, I think while talking about your academic background and what you're studying, I also want to ask you about, you know, why do we see a lack of one research, right, on this Mm -hmm. area? But second, I mean, Guerreras is all about finding your political voice. It's all about learning how to organize or if you've been invested in these issues, like how to even start doing that. And my question for you is, what do we as women and allies to other women need to know in order to organize a movement about reproductive health care? I mean, I know that, you know, in the histories of activism and in at least in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just talking about the United States here. Reproductive healthcare was seen as a white women's issue. Yes. It was not seen as an issue that affected 
uh, women of color. And, you know, the use of women of color, some people are like, oh, just one community. No, I am talking about black women. I am talking about native indigenous women. I am talking about Latina women. I'm talking about AAPI women. I'm talking about trans women, trans women of color, like, mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm adding all these into it. Um, women of color in the U S have negotiated their reproductive lives in a system that combines like various interlocking forms of oppression. Absolutely. Right? And our ability of what our ability to control what happens to our bodies is constantly challenged by poverty, by mm-hmm. sexism, mm-hmm. by racism, by environmental degradation, right? Because mm-hmm. so many, many women get birth defects because they're either working in the field or they're working somewhere with chemicals, right? Absolutely. Uh, homophobia and injustice in the United States. Like not only are we seen as the lesser than, like lesser than one but all these interlocking identities put us in a disadvantage, not because of us, but because of what society has predetermined, right, for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in your experience in activism and also being a skull activist, right, because you're a scholar and an activist too in mm-hmm. your spaces, what do we need to know? What do women listening to this podcast and allies need to know about organizing around this movement? Yeah, I think going back to something you said, right, like, Traditionally, when we think about reproductive rights, this is thought of as a women's issue that is affecting white women. So it's a white women's issue. Mm. And you are absolutely right. And that was by design. In fact, the reproductive rights movement that was popularized in the 60s and 70s exclusively focused on the needs of white women to the detriment of women of color Mm. and women with other intersecting identities your question of what do we need to know in order to form a movement around this? My short answer is you don't have to know much right away. Mm. I think most importantly, you just have to know that you're not okay with how things are Mm -hmm. and then be willing to listen and learn along the way. Like I, I know when I was starting to get involved in this and we'll probably talk about this more later I felt like oh I have to be perfect I have to know everything about this and right like I'm working on my PhD I'm writing a dissertation on this topic like in a lot of regards I'm an expert on this but I'm still learning I still don't know everything I want to know I still haven't read everything I want to to read but I at a certain point have to stop letting that stop me from getting involved Mm -hmm. um especially because your earlier comment about when we think about reproductive rights, we think about it as a white women's issue. That's absolutely true. And it's by design because in the sixties and seventies, when we had that second wave feminist movement that focused on getting, you know, abortion access with Roe v. Wade Mm -hmm. in the seventies and access to a legalized birth control pill in 1960, when the FDA legalized oral contraceptive pills, that was a movement that was explicitly for giving autonomy to white women. Mm-hmm. It was ignoring the fact that the state has been using reproduction and reproductive policies to control and take autonomy away from women of color. Talking about Roe v. Wade in 1973, uh, women of color resisted the coercion that was masqueraded as a choice. 
a lot of uh, that came out of the case. When in the 70s, 80s, 90s, Black women and Latina women have been forcibly sterilized. And there was a documentary, and what's the name of it, Abby? No Mas Bebes. No Mas Bebes, so No More Babies, where they talk about the experience of women of color who are forcibly sterilized by the state. This yes. are doctors. <laughs> doctors choosing for us if mm -hmm. we have access to give birth or not. And so when we talk about the key words of Roe v. Wade, if she chooses, right? Mm -hmm. If she chooses to have a child, like that choice was taken away from us for many, many years. It was a choice, like you said, like the reproductive healthcare movement mm -hmm. was really for white women in the second wave of feminism. So this, yeah. this question of choice, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not choice for us. It's being made for us, for us women of color. Right. And part of that is, okay, so great. Women have the choice to choose what happens to their own bodies. But again, that's in name only. It is not guaranteeing that clinics that are funding and providing abortions have enough funding to operate. Mm. They're not saying that those clinics are located close enough to women who need them desperately. Mm -hmm. They're not saying that they're affordable. Mm -hmm. You know, like there are all these different aspects of the Roe v. Wade decision that like don't that don't give access and choice broadly. It's a very specific white decision. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, a lot of Latina women and, and black women got together and were saying, look, this is not it. This is not our story. We are fighting for the right to have children when the state is taking that away from us and has been taking that away from us for decades. And we're not talking about that. We're talking about the rich white women who are always going to have access to birth control. We're always going to have access to abortion if and when they really needed it because they have the resources and the connections to be able to make that happen. Right. And, and that's one thing, right? It's classism. Yeah, because also women of color, we have access to money and there's some rich women of color out there. So we also mm -hmm. have to talk about this aspect of class, like who has access to doctors, right? And who has mm -hmm. access to the money to have a good health insurance, right? And now right. when we add race, when we add sexuality, when we add gender, those uh, observations change. But it's also recognizing like it's not just race, it's not just gender also the access to be in a higher socioeconomic status, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That, mm. It is that intersectionality of how all of these things connect, which is when we talk about this ACA decision, mm -hmm. where I'm going with this is that wealthy women will always have access to birth control. Mm -hmm. And white women will always have access to birth control. Like we're always going to find a way to, to make that happen for white women because the United States cares more about white women than it does about women of color, which is bullshit, but it's true because of white supremacy and because of patriarchy and the way that those things intersect in our capitalist society. And then who keeps it up as well? Like mm -hmm. the patriarchy survives not only because of men, but because of women that believe in it. Yeah. Right? Like not all women are feminists. 
not because we're women are we feminists not because we are part of the poor class are we anti-capitalist not just because we're of of a racial minority are we anti-racist right we also right. need to call out our own communities right mm -hmm. and this goes to my to our next question is um what should we ask from our communities in terms of our political awakening and our political organizing right because the people that sometimes keep us away from having these conversations from mm -hmm. organizing from this political awareness and this consciousness racing movement is members of our own communities yeah and i think a lot of times right like the members of our own communities say well, my struggle doesn't look exactly like that. And so I don't need to care about this. It doesn't affect me, so I don't need to care. Or I don't need to get involved. Or I don't need to advocate for this issue. Right? Because right with the ACA decision, like my birth control access is not threatened at all. Mm -hmm. I'm in a privileged position of not working for one of these institutions that is going to be able to take on one of these religious or moral exemptions to birth control provision. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, a grad student, so I don't make a lot of money, but I also have other privileges that help shelter me from, you know, even though my income is low, I have all these other privileges that help protect me from the effects of this decision. This decision disproportionately hurts young people, Black and Indigenous people of color, mm -hmm. LGBT folks and low-wage workers these are the people that are disproportionately hurt and particularly latinas as well which just because this decision doesn't affect me in this specific way doesn't mean that this precedent and this message that it's sending isn't important right it's saying that the state and the church get to continue to work together to make decisions about what happens to my reproducing body mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, and i'm not okay with that in, no, and I don't think a lot of people think about it that way, right? Mm -hmm. They don't, a lot of us think that if, if it's our employer, if it's because of our job, then we just have to, like, like uh, what, what's the word I'm thinking about? Just because you are employed by a company doesn't mean that the company owns you. They should not own your choice to your health. You should be making those decisions, and I'm not even going to like you, like, I have an IUD, I got it at Planned Parenthood because I was gonna lose my insurance. And I was so mm -hmm. scared because A, my insurance did not cover any contraceptives, right? right. I had to go and either to the school um, healthcare center or to Planned Parenthood. And thanks to, thank you Planned Parenthood at Chico, California, that they were able to give me access to a contraceptive that worked oh, yeah. with my body and was within my price range. And when I say it was within my price range, my price range was $0 and I paid right. $0 to get my IUD, which is in my body for 12 years. And it is surgically made and it is good for my body. And I can go anytime to Planned Parenthood to get checked out because it is covered because of organizations like Planned Parenthood and other community essential businesses that are health businesses. I'm just yes. saying that, putting that plug in there because people need to recognize that we may be talking about, we're talking about reproductive healthcare because the two women who are talking about this have either have had an incident, we have had to fight for it, we have had to have an argument about it, 
We mm -hmm. have had to find mm -hmm. solutions for ourselves and other women in our communities that need, require, and survive on these services. So we're not just saying that because it's just part of the conversation that's always going to be. It's because we're trying to make a change about the conversation. Mm -hmm. We're trying to make this be like, a oh, obviously, we should have access to healthcare. That should be the right. answer. <laughs> mm -hmm. Never having to argue this about, uh, it it's, a, it's a necessary conversation. It's a yeah. necessary right because we all have the right to live. Yeah. So, and the choices that we make allow us to continue living. And if that choice, right, and we were talking about choice before, and I know I may be redundant about it because not a lot of people have a choice. But if your decision to your bodily autonomy mm -hmm. is to keep a baby or to have a safe medical abortion, or to have mm -hmm. access to a medication, a contraceptive, or an STD check. Right, hello? Hello? Like, it, we're not just talking about abortion here. We're talking about the choice to have a free and healthy body. Yeah. And that, that looks like whatever you need it to look like. We're mm -hmm. not here to judge you on what it is. You, just, you should just have the option to make that decision for yourself. Yeah, if, when, and how you need it. Exactly. Absolutely. And that's the thing, right? Like, okay, yes, I care about this issue because it sets a nasty precedent that I'm not okay with for people who have reproducing bodies or people with uteruses, but also because I know the stories and I know the history of women who have been oppressed by the state for literally forever since since colonizers got here and started bringing over people from Africa against their will, since they started, you know, abusing Native and Indigenous people whose land we are on right now, right, like, have used reproduction to control people and to oppress people. And I know that, and I know that, and I take that to heart so deeply that it drives me to do something about it. Like, I can't sit still and be quiet knowing this, knowing that people don't know this, and knowing that even when people might have heard this before, they're still not doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's talk about the Spanish-American War where the United States claimed Puerto Rico as its territory. Right. And it is because of the forced experimentation of Puerto Rican women that we have mm -hmm. access to IUDs. Yes. IUDs were created after the forced experimentation of Puerto Rican women. Like, let's wrap our head around that. It's like yeah. a lot of those of medical, like, resources. Mm -hmm. A lot of medical like, advancements and things like that, yeah. Especially yes. in the reproductive healthcare field. We're built on the backs of abusive women of color. Yeah, they were built on the backs of, of women of color who were abused. Yes. By the use. They did not consent to what was happening to their bodies. They mm -hmm. did not have a choice to say no. Mm -hmm. Like, they did not. No, they were forced. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about contraception in this conversation, we're also acknowledging that a lot of these medications came about because of women of color, because of mm -hmm. Latina women, because of Black women, because of Indigenous women. Yeah. This is this is the truth, which is why it's so important for us to have these conversations so people know that reproductive health care is a Latina issue. 
It is. It's an issue for us. It's an issue and it's a mm-hmm. movement that we should care about because not only that, but like Latinas are the one racial group, like one woman of color group that is most likely to die from AIDS. Mm. From AIDS, we have about 23% of deaths of Latinas are due to HIV or AIDS. And I'm like, wait a minute, we're not talking about that. And that deals with reproductive health care. Absolutely, it because does. Because you need to be have access to STD checks and to medication, even medication if you were born with it. Right? Yes. To sustain you to live a healthy life. Because mm-hmm. you can lead a healthy life. And you should be able to lead a healthy and happy life. So this right. is absolutely a Latina issue because we are victims of state-sanctioned oppression in reproductive health care. And so, Abby, yeah. tell me these stats that you got. Okay, well, I've got some stats for you brought together by our friends, the amazing researchers and advocates over at the NLIRH, which is the National Latina Institute of Reproductive Health, as well as our friends over at Planned Parenthood who have done the good work and providing us some statistics about Latinas today related to contraceptive use. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of barriers to accessing contraception and consistent birth control use regardless of so many factors. But Latinas often live at the intersection of a lot of these issues. Poverty, which women in poverty are four times as likely to have unintended pregnancies compared to women who are not living in poverty. Lack of insurance, and one in three Latinx individuals are uninsured in the United States. Immigration status, language barriers, lack of comprehensive sex ed. These are just some of the existing barriers to Latinas accessing care. Mm -hmm. And as a result of the intersection and like compilation of all of these barriers, the result is poorer health outcomes. So young Latinas are the most likely group to skip taking prescription birth control because they can't afford it. And we know that making birth control the most effective, it has to be taken consistently. Mm-hmm. But if you can't afford it and you have to ration it or stop taking it, then you're not covered. You're not protected. And for anybody and- that has not taken the birth control pill, so if, if you started with a patch or you started with something else and you've never taken the pill, let me tell you, you got to take it every single day at the same exact time for however you're taking it. So for 365 days, you got to take it at 2 p.m. And if you miss one day, or you miss it by an hour, you are not protected the next day. It takes about what, like eight days, at least for your body to regulate again. And even yeah, then- Something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. something like that. But I remember when I was asking for the pill, they're like, hey, like, let me tell you what you're gonna have, to, what it's gonna look like. And that is not doable if you're a working woman. That is not doable if, you there's stigma around you taking a pill because I remember when I was taking the pill I would go to the bathroom and take that pill because I didn't want to be seen taking my birth control pill right on my work day and the stigma like why is there stigma anyways of me having to take a pill that's making my body safe there shouldn't be but then I realized the birth control was actually not the best option for me but that was thanks to having access to a doctor at Planned Parenthood Mm -hmm. that told me hey you know what this is probably not the best contraceptive to you, for you. Yeah. And that is even something that women don't have an a- access to. Somebody, a professional, that will tell them, you know what, Audia, you know what, Abby, this may not 
be the contraceptive for you. Mm -hmm. Let's try this instead. Right. And even, you know, the ability to go to a doctor that you trust is so huge because again, doctors were the ones who were saying, hey, Latina women, let's try Norplant instead, which is, okay, so back in the day, like during, I want to say it's the Nixon administration, the Nixon administration came out with this welfare cap policy that was like, okay, if you're a woman in poverty and you want to be on welfare under the like TAMF Act, the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Act, they were over here like, all right, so we want to control your reproduction. We don't want you having tons of kids on welfare because then we have to pay for them and blah, 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 and we're horrible. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to say, all right, if you want to continue to get assistance from us, you have to be on birth control and you have to be on the specific kind of birth control that we are over prescribing to like Latina women on poverty mm-hmm. and on welfare. And we're not prescribing this and we're not recommending this to white women of any demographic. Mm-hmm. And we're using that to control your reproduction. And that bred a lot of mistrust between doctors and patients, particularly low-income Latina patients. Mm -hmm. So even the ability to go to a Planned Parenthood and know that you have a doctor who is advocating for you, not for the government's agenda of, I don't want more black and brown babies on welfare, like, is huge, is huge, especially because Latinas continue to have higher rates of unintended pregnancy than their non-Latina white peers. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we account. Um, I mean, the largest Latinx communities in the United States are Mexican and Puerto Rican, mm-hmm. right? And Puerto Rican young women actually have a higher rate of teen pregnancy out of in the Latinx communities, right? So when mm-hmm. we're accounting of like women between the ages of seventeen and twenty one in the United States are having children, not necessarily because they want to. If you're 17 and you want and you got pregnant and you want to have a child, you know, that's your decision. But you should have also have had access to see a doctor when this was happening. Mm-hmm. Because we we and when I say we it's like your community, our Latina community should support you during this decision. Not make the choice for you. I make this decision for you, but just to say you have options. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, when I hear these stats, Abby, I feel about, I think about how many of these things have a solution. All these yes. things have a solution. Like just saying in a federal mandate that every woman or person with a uterus should have access to medication. Why? What is the stigma? Let's so let's drive it really home right now. Right. What's the stigma about us having access to these medications? What's the big deal? Right. Again, it comes back to the intersection of white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy. All of these things work together to say, um, no, we will not give women control. We will not give women of color control over their bodies. We know best. We're going to be making these decisions. Women who are independent, who are making these decisions, are problematic and need to be controlled and restricted and shut down. Cannot. It's 
we're definitely going to have to have a panel on how feminism and women's like consciousness awareness mm -hmm. it's all rooted because of the oppression of these other of these topics that you just mentioned yeah but abby we gotta get to it so after this whole conversation about what just happened with the supreme court's decision on wednesday on how this is going to affect over 100,000 people on losing coverage within the next year. Mm -hmm. I mean, not losing coverage within this next year where we're fighting coronavirus. Right. Where disproportionately, Latin, the Latino community is more susceptible to being victims and dying from the coronavirus in the United Absolutely. States. Mm -hmm. um, followed by then uh, the Black community, followed by then um, the API community or the, in the white community, right? But when we are, our community is disproportionately dying and we're dying at higher rates mm -hmm. in this pandemic that could have been right. avoided. And then over that, we women have to fight over the right to have access to their own bodies to protect themselves, right. and to care for themselves and to advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. Like what then for the Guerreras listening, what should we be asking from our community right now? Because this is really it. Like, we cannot do this fight alone. We mm -hmm. have been doing this fight only with women or allies that choose to support us during this. But honestly, we need to ask, I know we need to ask more from the community. You have worked yeah. with the ACLU. You study these issues. Like, what would you tell us? Yeah, I mean, I have, let's see, I have five things and they're kind of inter interlocking things mm -hmm. that we can be doing right now and that, you know, Latinas can ask their communities to be doing right now. I mean, first of all, is to educate yourself mm -hmm. on this decision. So this podcast is a great first step to doing that. You listen to this episode that you know enough to take that next step and get started with this, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you can read the tweets that have been posted about this decision so they use the hashtag hands off my BC, which is birth control, mm -hmm. hashtag abortion is healthcare, and hashtag SCOTUS, the, right, locking all those three together will get you everything that you need to know about this decision from people who are actually, you know, talking about it. Right. So that's great. And you can contribute your own voice to that and say, hey, I'm calling out my community right now. Like we cannot afford to be silent about this issue right now. I'm going to start speaking up. I'm going to ask you to start speaking up about this. Mm -hmm. We got to do something about this because this is affecting tons of people, some of whom look like me and some of whom don't. And all of them matter. Yes, absolutely. All of the... Checking our community is, I think, something... I know it's something mm -hmm. that we may be scared to do. And when I say check, checking, I'm not saying like, you know, fuck you for not doing that. That's not what I mean. Right. What I'm saying is, can we have an honest conversation? And can we actually call out what's happening right now? Mm -hmm. That the women in our communities are being disenfranchised and not even being allowed to make their own decisions over their own bodies. When we think about the existence of bodies, of black and brown bodies, of indigenous bodies, AAPI bodies, trans bodies, LGBTQ bodies, right? Mm -hmm. When our existence, when we walk out our door, our existence is questioned. It is not us who are at fault here. But right. if our community is keeping us 
in fear and not allowing us to make these decisions to change the status quo, then we are also part of the problem. Our community mm-hmm. is part of the problem for keeping us here. So if you're out there and you like these organizations that um, Abby has mentioned and some organizations that I'm going to link in the infographic for today's episode, look them up because I think, Abby, I know we will resonate with this. Reaching out to um, organizations, community chapters, um, even healthcare professionals in your community mm-hmm. that are advocates on this issue, it's truly the, the right step towards a revolution in this topic. It, there's yes. no, we're not asking you here to create another type of Planned Parenthood. We're not asking you to uh, create the newest organization. But hey, if that is what we need, mm-hmm. well, the more power to you. Right. Well, and that leads me to one of my next recommendations is put your money where your mouth is. Yes. Invest in the organizations that already exist, that are underfunded, that are going to be taking in some of this overflow. So become a regular donor to organizations like Planned Parenthood and other community-based organizations who've already, so Planned Parenthood has pledged to help people get birth control access despite this. They're saying, all right, like your employer is taking away your access to birth control. Come to Planned Parenthood. We will take care of you. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of community response that we need. And so, you know, I'm not a doctor. Mm-hmm. I am not a healthcare professional. I don't have the power to give somebody access to birth control, you know, with my prescription pad, but Planned Parenthood does Mm -hmm. and they're willing to help, but they need money. They need funds to continue to stay afloat and to be able to provide these services to folks. And on top of that, you know, also volunteer and donate to your local abortion fund, Mm -hmm. right? So like if people don't have access to birth control and they're having like Mm -hmm. unprotected sex and they have an unintended pregnancy, abortion needs to be an accessible option for them. And the way that that works is abortion funds front the money for people to have access to abortions. So in Indiana, mine is called the All Options um, Center, and they're accepting applications for trainings for their abortion talk line right now. So literally you go through a training and then you are the person who's accepting phone calls when people are like, I want to get an abortion, but I don't know how, I don't know what to do. Is it the right choice? And then you would literally be trained in how to talk somebody through that and let them know their options, let them know what's available to them, the resources, the funding, all of it, and how it's all going to work. In California, that kind of stuff is huge. I, I, it's huge. And sometimes it's as simple as donating five bucks. Yes. It's, and being like a consistent donor if you can. Exactly. If you have the means to. Mm-hmm. do that. And I know you just mentioned Indiana and I know in California, at least in Oakland, uh, the national network of abortion funds, if you just Google them, they have an access women, uh, access women's health justice, which advises you about medical processes, childcare, financial assistance, lodging meals. Um, access is the name of the organization provides free confidential and non-judgmental information, referrals, peer counseling, and advocacy in a full range of reproductive healthcare needs. So if you just need to call somebody and talk Mm -hmm. about it, believe me, there are organizations out there and all we got to do is volunteer, like Abby said, donate and, or get involved. That's, that's I think. Yeah. And my last 
recommendation for what we can do is keep voting and calling your reps and letting them know about exactly how you feel about this, exactly what the problems are, and encouraging them to continue to invest more in the needs of your and other marginalized communities, right? Like I've called my reps before and said, hey, we need to defund the police and we can spend that money on reproductive justice initiatives that are happening at the community level. Love it. That's going to be the soundbite for this episode because that <laughs> that's what it is at the community level. And let me throw some stats in there. Over yes. Close to 30 million Latinos are going to be eligible to vote in the November 2020 election. 20 oh million. Gosh. Are you listening to me? 20 million are going to be able to vote. Right? That doesn't mean that 20 million block. people are going to go, are going to turn 18. That's not what I'm saying. These are people that either have been waiting for their citizenship, either have just signed up to vote, or are turning 18. So there's three kinds of categories, and that amounts to 20 million, more than 20 million. I think it's close to 30 million, like 28 something. Check me, Voto Latino. I know because I looked at the stats. <laughs> but just like Abby said, we have the power as voters right? Because being a voter is also part of privilege class of advocating for the needs of our communities at the local level. Now, some people think it's like, it's all about Congress. It's all about the presidency. It's all about the Senate. No. I, as somebody that has studied American government, especially when it comes to gender and politics. Yes, let us know. Women's agenda. Here I go. Voting at local level elections has a higher impact on your life than the national election. Not saying the Congress isn't important, not saying the Senate isn't important, that's not what I'm saying here. But city council members, assembly members, the DA, the mayor, those are the people that actually set in the budget how much it go how much money goes into access to healthcare in your community. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a community that is in the lower income zip codes that has been gerrymandered and redistrict and redlined, it's due to local elections. Yes, that is the dirty secret that none of us political scientists have wanted to admit, but here we are admitting it because it is true. So mm-hmm. if you've ever asked like, hey, two blocks from me looks very different than where I currently live, local elections. That's local where it happens. Local elections. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Like that was almost ASMR. Local <laughs> elections. Let <laughs> me tell you the secret. It's local elections. Uh, right. Yes. <laughs> Like, the uh, yes, vote all the time, vote often. And if you don't know the names of your representatives, now is a great time to learn. When now you're educating a- yourself about this issue, now is a great time to learn. Yes, and I'm honestly going to create a QR code that gets shared over and over again with Guerreras registering to vote. So yes. I'm going to have you all register to vote. And if you register to vote after listening to this episode, send me a screenshot and coffees on me. Because I love coffee. And yes. also defund Goya. So we don't avoid yes. Goya anymore. Have to throw that in, people. I am really sad because I'm going to have to figure out what kind of other black beans I want to eat now. <laughs> right. Though. Um, but less to say, Abby, let's wrap this up with things that you wish your community would have told you or allowed you to ask about when it comes to reproductive healthcare, reproductive 
justice because I know your story and I know we did not grow in communities that talked about this issue at all. Right. Yeah, yeah I didn't. I grew up in a really conservative evangelical community and I wasn't given any information about my body or what I was allowed to do with it or what I was allowed to want to be done with it, right? Like I wasn't told that it my it was my decision. Mm-hmm. I was told that it was God's decision. Mm. <laughs> Which like mm, I have some feelings about it still. Um but yeah, I would have loved if my community told me that this story is bigger than me, but also includes me, Mm. right? That like the story of state-sanctioned violence against the reproductive autonomy of women has been ongoing for centuries Mm -hmm. and that I am a part of it and I can be a part of it. You know, I grew up in a community that talked a lot about helping the less fortunate, helping people who are marginalized and oppressed, caring about them, doing outreach for them, but didn't tell me the whole story, didn't let me have access to the knowledge that I needed. I would have loved if my community said, hello, we're standing up for this. This is bullshit. We are fighting back. We are getting loud about this. We have privilege. Like, I'm a white woman. I'm a cis white woman. Like, I've got enough privilege to make a change about this, to say something about this and have people listen to me. Mm-hmm. Like that's what we should be screaming about all the time is that like reproductive justice is so important. It matters. And I think just something else like that I wish someone had told me is that healthcare decisions should be made between individuals and their doctors. And we need a greater focus on removing those barriers to those decisions especially now during a pandemic when so much of that is being threatened mm-hmm. i feel like i would have loved to have been able to ask my community to show up for me yeah i'm a lesbian woman in my mid 20s and my community has turned its back on me largely from a reproductive standpoint from a sexual orientation standpoint and i mean i no longer a, affiliate myself with that community because of those issues because there's so much bullshit and baggage there for me personally but like yeah like show up for me and show up for my sisters right like I think that's the biggest thing like if anything is that last thing is like I wish I would have known that I was allowed to ask for that Yes, I and I appreciate your vulnerability because I know it's we we are constantly in this battle of demonstrating that we got it either all together or that we are figuring it out as we go. And that's mm-hmm. also vulnerable, right? Like being able yeah. to admit that you are having either difficulty processing an issue or that you have been uh misguided or that you have been left to fend for yourself from your own community. So mm-hmm. many of us are cultural identities, our gender identity, our sexual identity is part of our whole being. And when one of those communities lets us know that they are not here for us, that they are not supporting us, that what we are, who we prefer to love, how we prefer to be acknowledged uh, and recognized is not an option for them. That is heartbreaking. And I appreciate you sharing your story because I know that there's people out there 
that have either wondered why this issue, like I grew up in Mexico and abortion mm-hmm. is illegal, right? It's illegal. There is no clinic that you can go to, to ask for an abortion. And if you do need one, it's because either you are dying or the baby is dying. Like that's, mm-hmm. it's only because of a, of, as a medical procedure, but not because it's a procedure that you need to survive in your, as, a, as your own entity and body. And I grew up hearing about women having abortions. And I thought to myself, like, it was always like a, like, oh my God, did you hear sort of rumor? Right. Mm-hmm. And not the, until I grew up was it, and I moved to the States, I was like, wait a minute, like you have access to it here and it's still demonized, right? Like it's women are currently still dying in Mexico because either they try to give themselves an abortion or they were they fell down the stairs. There's so many women that have quote unquote fell down the stairs mm-hmm. and die or right. they uh, were beaten and abused. And now they, now that they do want to have a baby, they can't because they were so, they were harmed and tortured to lose that other child. Right. Right. Um, And I think for me, it's like what I wish I would have asked my community. Yeah. Is I, I, I'm getting emotional because I know so many women that are so scared currently. I grew up with personally that are just scared about this topic because of the stigma that comes with it. But I just wish I could have asked what is so wrong about being a woman. Like, right. I wish somebody at that age would have, if they would tell me there's nothing wrong. And I was like, then why is it still happening? Why are women still dying because of this issue? Right. Right. Like, are human beings with a uterus, why are they still dying? Because that is my problem. I need somebody to answer this question to me. Why are we still dying for this? I know that's a, that's a big question for an eight-year-old to ask, but that's how I felt. Yeah. We're, we're being murdered for being women. We're being tortured for being women. We're being antagonized for being women. We mm-hmm. are being oppressed just for the fact that we can con- conceive life. What are what is the issue then? Like, why is it so bad to be a woman? So I think that's <laughs> I know it's so philosophical, y'all. You're listening to this, and you're also getting emotional with us, and that's good. You should be getting emotional because politics is all emotional. The right, right. to your own body is emotional, and that choice being taken away from you, it is emotional, and. You know, you and I have been in spaces of political spaces, political spaces where it's mainly dominated by men and Mm -hmm. men think that politics is logical. Logical gains is one chapter of international relations in political science. It is one chapter. It is Mm -hmm. statistical methods data. That's what it is. Any of you IR people that want to come at me, you're more than welcome to do so. Um, My rate is $30 an hour if you want to fight, but (laughs) pay me my worth. Um, but that's what I'm saying. Logic, mm-hmm. game logic, game theory is two sections of IR and political methodology. All of the rest of politics, of gender in politics, of gender and politics, of LGBTQ plus politics, that's emotional. Because a decision was made for you, against you. And that, that's something that gets to me. Nowadays, where people are like, oh, political science. I'm like, <laughs> you have no idea. You right. have no idea. Um, it's more than just the courts. It's more than just Senate. It is this conversation that we're having with Abby today. Creating movements. It is advocating for our own bodies. It is having these conversations. Because I know, Abby, like, you getting to this point of your studies was not easy either. No, it was not. 
Tell it's us a more. fight. Yeah. I have had to fight for this mm-hmm. all the time, fighting for the dissertation topic that I want, finding my way to this field of study, fighting against mental health issues, fighting against funding problems, fighting against unsupportive advisors, all of this stuff. It's a fight and it's a struggle because the academy was not made for people like me and people of color and, you know, like all other marginalized folks. It's not impersonal that the world hates queer people. It's not impersonal that the world privileges white people to the detriment and hatred of people of color. Like, that's not impartial. That's not just like the facts or how it is. Like, that's not just a general statistic. Like, that affects individual lives. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, I think about that all the time. And sometimes it, makes it feel so overwhelming and feels like this problem is so big. Like, how could I possibly contribute to its solution? How could I do anything meaningful, whatever? And I have to sit with that for a second and just say, hey, wait, no. We need everyone. Mm -hmm. We need a community of people coming together and say, this is unacceptable. This is unacceptable. And there are things that I can do about it and I'm going to do them, even if they feel small, even if they feel insignificant, even if I can't see the difference that I'm making, I'm going to show up. Yeah. And that's the fight. And there's so many organizations out there that are here for you and that will want, they are seeking people like us and people like you to be mm-hmm. part of this fight because they know that you've been fighting your whole life just to exist. I mean, this is this is why this podcast was created. This is why this space is being held. That's why women like you, Abby, and women like me, we, we're trying to advocate for just folks to be asking those questions. And it's like, wait a minute. Yes, my community should be advocating for me. Right. My community should want me to survive. And should be willing to tackle those tough questions of why is my existence threatening to all of these people who are in positions of power. This conversation is not about just access to abortion. If any of you are thinking that at this point, this is about reproductive rights. It's about reproductive freedom. It is about reproductive health. Mm -hmm. And that goes for both women and men. Absolutely. This is, you should have the right to start a family or to wait to start a family if that is what you choose to do. You should have the right to be a parent or to wait, or you should just have access to keep yourself safe until you're ready to do whatever it is that you want to do with your own body. Right. Right. Cause like Abby mentioned, it's not the nuclear family is complete bullshit. That is something that in the fifties they decided to do in order to create classes and economic classes in the United States and mm-hmm. nuclear family. Also the fact that they call it nuclear, I'm very uncomfortable with that. Right. Um, the devastating consequence of the SCOTUS decision on Wednesday is that employers and companies can make a decision for you over your own reproductive health. That means you don't have reproductive rights. If the access, if the access to certain medication is being chosen by somebody that isn't you, you are not free. You do not have that right. And that goes right. for men and women. 
But yeah. given to history, reproductive health care, that's all a women's issue, but it isn't. It right. isn't just a women's issue. It is right. If men are listening to this and they're thinking like, oh, wow, this doesn't apply to me at all, then you've missed the point of this entire episode, which is that if you were a human being, you cannot step away from this history. You cannot step away from this issue. And it is high time that you stop being silent about this issue. This is a problem. Mm-hmm. And men especially need to throw their privilege in the ring and say, all right, I'm going to start talking about this. This is not okay. This is an issue for all of us. Invest it. We should, we should invest on it. We should donate. We should volunteer. We should organize. But there's a stigma around this topic that has to be addressed within our communities. And so after listening to this episode and you have a conversation with your family, you have your conversation with your friends, or you have a conversation with your partner, or you ask your employer in your next job interview, hey, what is my healthcare coverage when it comes to reproductive health and reproductive medication? And if they cannot answer that question, maybe you shouldn't take that job. Right. Also, another question that you should be asking is like, what was your response during the coronavirus pandemic? And what is your response towards uh, federal budgets going to the police. That should be on your list of questions to ask an employer because I want to make sure that you are working for a company that cares about you and your livelihood. And right. that includes the livelihood of all of us because why not? Right. Why not? Especially <laughs> if you're in a position of privilege to be able to turn down a job and find another one. Yes. Abby can see me that I'm like snapping real hard over here on the back, uh, but absolutely true. And we are folks that we want to advocate for you. So if there's any that you want us to talk about, that you want me to talk about, that you want resources for, uh, Guerreras has a Google Drive with organization information with links to uh, episode notes. So if you ever need like, hey, Abby mentioned this one organization and I want to check it out. All you have to do is click the link in my bio, Guerrera's Pod. It's going to take you to a Linktree app. and a Linktree app, you'll be able to see Guerrera's episode, Google Drive. And you will be able to access the information that we just spoke about in the show. And also, if Abby wants to share the Well, That's a Problem podcast link, we'll definitely put it in there because you should listen to her um, podcast abby your latest episode is on ice yeah it's on ice (laughs) right (laughs) not the kind we like the kind we don't um yeah it's on ice ice's most recent international student ban Mm -hmm. um the tagline is we don't need ice we need to get rid of ice it should go by abolish ice uh we stand hashtag abolish ice the only ice i like is on my margarita and in my coffee so abby Thank you for being a guest in the Guerreras podcast. I love listening to you and learning from you because honestly, you were my first guest in this podcast and we got to talking honestly because Abby recognized a pin on my backpack of Gloria and Saldua. And if any of you don't know who Gloria and Saldua is, please read the, this bridge called My Back. Um, and she looked at me, she looked at the pin and then I knew we were friends. And here we are a year later and educating, educating the masses, staying involved and being unapologetic at the end of the day, right? Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. Like I said, Guerreras is one of my favorite podcasts of all time. 
everyone should be a subscriber in my opinion. It's so fun to be here because I love being able to have these critical conversations with somebody who shares my perspectives and is also able to say, all right, we're going to take all this knowledge that we talk about, you know, off mic and bring it to the masses and educate them. And it just feels so good to be here with you. All right, Abby, this is it for today's episode. And again, subscribe to Guerrero's podcast, subscribe to, well, that's a problem screenshot it. Let us know. Let us know if you shared it. Let us know if anything that you learned from us today was something that you're going to take to your community. And with that being said, go out there, change your community, use this knowledge or share your knowledge with other people because that's the most important thing. That's what makes us warriors in our community is to take this knowledge, to raise the consciousness of our community, of our family, of our peers and then change the world because the revolution, that's us. Mm-hmm.